and based at living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. The Holy Word of God. Thank you. Although there is a lot in that particular passage, we are going to spend the bulk of our time uh, unpacking some of the context of what's happening, particularly in verses 25, 26, and 27. But uh, I wanted the whole passage read so that we were able to get a glimpse into uh, what, is, what has taken place over the course of this timeline. Well, the famous artist Michelangelo once said, in every block of marble I see a statue. I only have to hew away the rough walls that imprison the lovely apparition to reveal it. Michelangelo had this ability to look beneath the surface and see something that no one else could see existed. Last week, we, we began a series called Beneath the Surface, and we explored how God looks at the heart of people, and you and I were reminded of the importance of doing the same. We considered that for most of us, the outward appearance, our actions, our looks, our culture, what we do is a small percentage of what makes up who you and I are. And that, we just, and that we draw conclusions and write stories about others to fill in the remaining portions about people that we don't see in each other. We talked about how we see others and assign value to them based on the externals. But we also considered how to look beneath the surface into this healthy discernment process about others that allows us to see people the way that Jesus does. So to introduce my point this morning, we're going to show a, a brief video here. It's about 90 seconds long, and it's a, it's, a, this, it's a video of transformation that I think will capture some of what I plan to talk about this morning. So uh, if you guys could fire up that video, that would be...
That's good. So as you can see, the video is about five minutes long. I've posted it on our Facebook page so you can see what else, what, what happens. And, and if you're wondering what that material is, it's Parmesan cheese. And, uh, and it's, it is amazing the transformation that, that took place. And I, we don't know how long that was, but, um, but the transformation of how something was able to be drawn out of this block of cheese, isn't it? Now, I also want to assure you that the remaining three minutes and 30 seconds wasn't the same music as what you just heard. But, um, but in the same way that this sculptor was able to draw out something that was beneath the surface, I would like to suggest to you this morning that Barnabas is doing something similar as we begin to explore this section from Acts chapter 9. Barnabas is one of these men who, who pops up in a few different places throughout the book of Acts in some of these really subtle ways. And Barnabas, although Barnabas in many ways seems to take a secondary seat to Paul in the book of Acts, I would argue that without Barnabas, Paul may not have experienced the influence he had in the first century church. In fact, I've often contended that behind Jesus and behind Paul, Barnabas may be the third most influential person in, in the New Testament. I think there's a couple of really noticeable characteristics that were recorded in the life of Barnabas that I want to emphasize this morning. First of all, one of the things that we see about Barnabas is that Barnabas is one of these behind-the-scenes kind of guys. When he's first introduced to us in Acts chapter 4, he is introduced by another name. But we find out that he, has, he, has a, he owns property, he owns some land, and he sells it, and he lays it at the feet of the apostles because he understands the importance and the value of, of, of meeting a, a gospel kingdom need. And then we go on to read in Acts chapter 9 through 15 the missionary journeys that, that Barnabas and Paul were a part of during, the, during those years. And in many ways, Paul was, was the, the public figure. He was the voice of these missionary journeys, but it was Barnabas in many ways that was the behind-the-scenes ministry mentor for Paul as, they, as, they, as Paul started his early years of ministry. Now, some biblical historians actually think that maybe Barnabas was one of the 72 disciples that Jesus sent out in Luke chapter 10, although there's, not, there's no biblical evidence to support that, but there is some historical suggestions that maybe that is that he was part of that group. Now, another quality that defines Barnabas is his grace and his desire to give second chances. Where the measure of grace that we see him offer to others is significant. It's his ability to give people like John Mark a second chance. John Mark is, is actually Barnabas' cousin, and, and the first missionary journey that, John, that Paul and, and Barnabas went on, John Mark was a part of. And halfway through, John Mark quit, and he left. And the second missionary journey, John Mark wanted to come again. Barnabas wanted to bring him. But Paul said, forget it. And it's at that point where we see this, this they, go, they part ways at this point. But it was Barnabas who said, you know what, let's give him a second chance. And we can be thankful that he did because John Mark would go on to, to write two different letters that we know today as the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. This seemingly, this young man who quit ministry was allowed to have a second chance because Barnabas invited him into another opportunity. He was able to extend grace towards him. And then, of course, we see Paul, who was given a second chance as well, as we read this morning in Acts chapter 9. 
And so this morning, I want us to consider the impact that Barnabas had in Paul's life as Paul's ministry is seemingly just getting started. Now, when we are first introduced to the Apostle Paul, we need to know that his name initially was Saul. He's the man who earlier in, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 7, orchestrated the murder of Stephen. And he'd been traveling throughout Israel, hunting down people of the way, which is what Christianity was called in the first century. But when, when we read about Saul's miraculous conversion experience on the road to Damascus in the early parts of Acts chapter 9, the trajectory of Saul's life ch is changed forever. Now, as a point of clarification here, when we read the, the Acts chapter 9 specifically, the way that it reads is, is maybe a little misleading in the sense that it almost reads as one linear event in a fairly condensed timeline. But if we, we read that Saul encounters Jesus earlier in the chapter, that he, goes, he meets with Ananias in Damascus, and it says he spends some time there. But, and then we read in verse 26 that Saul came to Jerusalem. Now, in a bubble, if we were just to read that particular chapter, it sounds as though Saul had his conversion experience and then his arrival in Jerusalem was very close to each other, within a couple of months, maybe a couple of weeks of each other. But when we read Galatians chapter 1, particularly verse 18, it tells us that the timeline was actually more like three years between his conversion experience and his arrival in Jerusalem. And so three years, Saul has been traveling throughout Arabia, between his conversion experience and his arrival into this moment that we just read in Jerusalem. And it's during those three years that, that Saul has been, been traveling throughout Arabia, sharing the message of Jesus to the Gentiles. Now, in some ways, we can probably presume that although communication didn't move as quickly as it does today, that word would have spread that this, this Saul, who was murdering Christians, was now in Arabia telling people about Jesus and proclaiming the salvation message. This man who had so fervently tried to destroy the church had, had seemingly shifted his beliefs to now following it. And I'm sure that the skeptics of Saul's conversion were both vocal and numerous. As Saul spent three years declaring the message of Jesus, and then suddenly Saul shows up in Jerusalem. And we read in verse 26 that the disciples in Jerusalem, their response to him was fear. They were afraid of him. Now at this point, we also, it's understandable, I think, because we need to remember that the last time that the Christians in Jerusalem had, had seen Saul, he was, he was overseeing the murder of one of their own. He was overseeing the murder of Stephen. And he was threatening everyone else. It is understandable why fear would have gripped the Christian community. The reputation amongst the Christian community was that Saul was far too powerful, far too cruel, and far too intelligent to ever want to mess with. And so not only was there fear because of what they knew, because of what they, what they had already observed in Saul's behavior, there was also this deep sense of skepticism because they didn't know whether this declaration that Saul was making was genuine or not. And even though the disciples in Jerusalem likely would have heard accounts of Saul's sharing his faith in, in Arabia, it obviously wasn't enough to, to detract from Saul's past. And everything that the disciples knew about Saul and had seen at this point was pretty condemning. What they knew about Saul 
from three years earlier was all very public, was all very visible. And so a few stories here and there, a few spattering glimpses into, into what Saul was maybe doing in Arabia seemed to do very little in terms of changing their position towards him. And so the Christians of Jerusalem had been impacted by Saul in one form or another. They had emotional and physical wounds because of Saul's actions. There was fear that, was, that, was, that had gripped them, that maybe they were wondering, was this some sort of subversive strategy that Saul was taking in Jerusalem? You're know, thinking, maybe, maybe he was able to deceive the Gentiles in Arabia, but, but surely us Christians in Jerusalem, we know better. But the, and so the Christians didn't, in Jerusalem didn't trust him. Wondering if Saul's arrival in Jerusalem was maybe like the, the Trojan horse that they read about during the Trojan Wars centuries earlier. Would he just try to get inside and, and gain their trust and poison them from the inside and, and destroy them from the inside out? And so the discernment process that took place between, these, between the disciples who raised, who, between the disciples that were there that he was trying to, to, to fellowship with, they, it had raised some pretty substantial red flags. They saw this man who had a very public profile three years earlier. And as we talked about last week, how we sometimes write stories about people, we fill in the gaps, but we don't know about others. They wrote a story about him as well that ultimately left him alienated from the Christian community. After all, how could anyone with, a, with such a jaded history change so drastically? And unfortunately, their hurt and their fear outweighed the reality that God really had done a transformative work in Saul's life. And it's in the midst of this rejection from the Christian community that Barnabas steps in. That Barnabas begins to extend to Saul an opportunity for a second chance. He begins to extend an opportunity to experience grace on a personal level. There's something inside of Barnabas is stirred, presumably the Holy Spirit. And we read in verse 27 that Barnabas took hold of Saul. Now, the Greek word here is long, and I can't pronounce it. But it's this idea of seizing someone. It's just, you know when, when a child gets too close to a hot oven or gets too close to, to the road, and they, and they grab their child and they, and they pull them back quickly to protect them? That's, that's the idea that's happening here. It's this protective act that is taking place. It's, it's this idea of grabbing someone and taking them into, possession, into their possession, making sure that they're, that they're safe from everything else, from the outside surroundings. And there's something about Saul and his situation that compelled Barnabas to step out of the crowd and initiate a relationship that would change history forever, I believe. See, Barnabas took the time to look beneath the surface and explore whether or not this testimony, whether or not the things that, that Saul was saying, whether they were true or not, or whether it was just a facade. And it was over the course of this conversation that Barnabas began to hear and see beneath the surface and see beyond Saul's past. And he began to discern the work that God was doing in Saul's life. And I think in this passage, Barnabas sets an example for us that if God's miraculous mercy and grace was extended for humanity, that it also included the least and the worst of these, like Saul. 
that if God's miraculous mercy and grace was extended for humanity, that it also included the least and the worst of these, like Saul. So the question that, that I wrestle with is, okay, so who is the people in my life that I've disqualified? Who are the people in my life that I've said, they're too far gone? Who are the public figures in my life who, who, who I see at a distance and have, have written a story about and I conclude, oh, they're just too far gone? I often say that as a, as a leader, trust is like a piggy bank. You're either making deposits or withdrawals. There are times where you're depositing trust equity with those that follow you. And there are times, though, that you're withdrawing. For Barnabas, in this moment, he is about to make a major withdrawal. Everything he had done in his life had given him this reputation as a man of encouragement. I mean, that's literally what his name means, as son of encouragement. See, I think there's enough evidence in the book of Acts and in Barnabas' life to suggest that he had a fairly healthy reputation amongst the Christians within Jerusalem, that he, had, that he was seen with high, with high esteem. And yet he risked it all for the gospel for the sake of one man. He risked his reputation, everything he had built, for one man. The risk that Barnabas took is significant. He risks his entire reputation to vouch for this murderer. He risks his entire reputation to, to vouch for this deceiver. He risks his entire reputation to vouch for Saul. But by looking beneath the surface, Barnabas was able to hear the redemptive power of Jesus in, in Saul's life, which allowed him to be able to advocate for him to the apostles. You see, at this point, in this at this point in Saul's life, at this point when he walks into Jerusalem, he has zero credibility within the within the Christian community. But Barnabas does. And so Barnabas becomes his co-signer. He has Saul has no trust equity in his little piggy bank. But Barnabas does. Barnabas had looked deep enough under the surface to see a changed man. He looked beyond the appearance, he looked beyond Saul's past and saw the heart of a man who had been transformed by Jesus. He saw the heart of a man who wanted to be used by Jesus for his kingdom purposes. Can I just say as a moment, in, in, a, in this moment of transparency, that one of the things that I struggle with, not as, as a pastor, but as a, just as a Christian in general, is when someone makes a decision to follow Jesus, is how to discern how genuine that faith decision is. Especially when I see celebrities who make declarations about their faith. You know, Justin Bieber, Chris Pratt, Kanye West, any U.S. president. Is it just a marketing ploy? Is it something to keep their brand fresh and their, main, and their name in the mainstream media? Is this change that they're making really real? Or is it just to improve their polling positions or to sell a few, few more albums? But I wish that I could say personally that this was just a celebrity thing. But I think over the years, I've been to enough events and conferences where I've seen men and women and teenagers who, who have chosen to give their lives to Christ at these events. And, and there's lots of emotion happening. And, and they make these strong declarative statements like, I'm going to follow Jesus forever. 
But then in a couple of weeks, the intensity to follow Jesus is gone and it's weaned and they're living back in their old life again. And then as I reflect on that, I'm left wondering, did they just get caught up in the emotion of that event? Did it really mean anything? Like, what was their motive in that? Maybe, and then I find myself reflecting on myself, and did I, was it, did I fail them because I didn't disciple them well enough? Is that maybe on me? Or maybe, it's, maybe God's Spirit is not powerful enough as I think it is. Maybe, maybe it just it didn't take. And I can see these faces and these names in my own life where these people seem so passionate about serving and following Jesus. And from the outside, it all seems so exciting and so good. We've got friends who, who are part of churches, who are part of ministries, who, who, who they, they declared their faith in Jesus, and now 20 years later, it's gone. And I think in this passage, Barnabas reminds us that going beneath the surface isn't just a simple observation about other people, but that wise discernment happens when we begin to invest time into people, that as we journey with them, that we allow space for us to hear what is happening beneath the surface, as we allow time to hear them wrestle with the questions that maybe they have about their faith, as they have, maybe the questions that they have about Jesus, that we can actually begin to journey with them and hear what's happening as opposed to just allowing them to to flounder alone and then just walk away from it all. As we spend time to go beneath the surface, it allows us to be able to identify if the Spirit of God is alive in them. And if not, then how can we begin to to point them towards Jesus so that the Spirit of God begins to to permeate and, and, and live out in their life? Barnabas, though, reminds us that no one is beyond the reach of God's love and grace. He looks at Paul and says, your past has not disqualified you. You can still have Jesus' love. You can, still, you can still experience his grace. So here's three ways that I think that would allow us to create space to invite others to go beneath the surface. One, develop good biblical theology as it relates to people. Develop good biblical theology as it relates to people. Two, develop a posture of vulnerability. Three, have a posture of advocacy. Let me explain each of those for us. If we take a brief look at at Galatians, or let me try that again. If we take a brief look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Out of this passage, I think, comes a critical nugget of theology as it relates to humanity, as it relates to you and I. You see, when we understand the breadth of this fundamental truth, it reveals that the things under the surface, that that underneath the surface, that people look at are 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 important, but they aren't the sum of who they are. Let me try that again that the things that we look at that are, that are above the surface, they, that makes up a portion of who we are, but it's not the sum of who we are. This passage reveals to us that our value and worth and significance aren't based on our culture. They aren't based on our past, our sexuality, our employment, our race, or our gender. 
But instead, like the cheese artist, when we begin to scrape away the cheese, we see that there's, this, there's a creation rooted in the reflection of Jesus present in each one of us. Barnabas understood that, and he was able to draw that reality out in Saul too. The first century church had essentially disqualified any possibility that Saul was telling the truth. But beneath the surface was a man whose story was unwritten, but now God would be the author of it instead of himself. If we believe this to be true, God is wanting to be revealed in all of us, regardless of our exterior. Regardless of what we look like on the surface, God is wanting to be revealed in all of us. So good theology is important as we look beneath the surface. And out of that good theology, I believe, is, is an, is, requires a response as we develop a posture of vulnerability where we remind ourselves that nothing on the surface changes our value in the eyes of God, but instead that it's the value that Christ gives us and the work that he has done and is doing in us that gives us value. Let me say that again. That nothing on the surface changes our value in the eyes of God, but instead it's the value that Christ gives us and the work that he has done and is doing in us that gives us value. One of the things that vulnerability does, though, is that it actually prevents stories from being written about us. As I mentioned, we, when we, we, we have this tendency as people to write stories about each other. We draw conclusions about each other based on this limited storyline that we have about each other. It's not right, but we all do it. So one of the ways that we can prevent that from happening is actually having a posture of vulnerability. So instead of me writing a story about David, that now, now I, if I'm vulnerable to him instead, of him, instead of him writing a story about me, I can share my story with him and it allows him to be able to hear my story. It prevents, it, what it does is it, it allows me to fill in the blanks that he might be tempted to fill in and it allows me now to be able to, to fill those in for him with what the reality might be in my life. Now, appropriate vulnerability, though, is a learned relational practice. It's, like, it's kind of like getting into a hot tub. You wouldn't just cannonball in and just hope that everything's going to be okay. It's, that wouldn't be smart. That wouldn't be safe. But instead, you just kind of tip your foot in and just, okay, that's good temperature. Okay, I feel like I can go a little bit further in. Okay, I can get a little bit more in. And as we get more and more into the hot tub, we realize it's a safe place. And it's the same way with vulnerability within our relationships, that we begin to just dip our toe in and just try it out. Is this a safe environment for me to be vulnerable? Okay, yeah, it is. I think I'll get a little further. Okay, yeah, I think this is, this is good. And what it allows us to do is allows us to be able to get deeper and deeper within our relationships because we're willing to be vulnerable with one another. It builds trust with each other. What it does is that it shows others as well that I'm not alone. Last week, I, I shared a story about uh, how I got, I got in a yelling match uh, with, a, with another driver on the road earlier this year. And, uh, and it was more to illustrate my point, but someone came to me after the service and said, thank you so much for sharing that story because I feel so much better about my driving. <laughs> <laughs> what vulnerability does is that it allows us to show that we aren't alone. That I struggle with the same thing that you do. 
And one of the biggest ways that we build trust with one another is through our ability to show ourselves, to be vulnerable. Where we expose ourselves, warts and all, and it reveals to others that we aren't perfect, but that, but that we are made complete in Christ, and we can find comfort and we can celebrate that. That Christ has made us complete in spite of our flaws. Barnabas understood that Saul was not a perfect man. However, he did see that he was made complete in the death and resurrection of Jesus. That the grace that Barnabas received from Jesus was available to Saul as well. Lastly, live in a posture of advocacy. No one is beyond the gift of grace. No one is disqualified from Jesus. We live in a world full of imperfect people. You're one of them. So am I. Unfortunately, we live in a culture right now that sometimes forgets that. Forgets that we make mistakes from time to time. Sometimes we make a lot of mistakes. But as followers of Jesus, as the Christian church, we have a responsibility, I believe, to be a voice in our culture, to point people towards Jesus the way that Barnabas did with Saul. Reminding people that they are not the sum of their mistakes. That, they are, that people are not the sum of their outward appearance. That there is something beneath the surface, and it's Jesus that wants to come out in them. That there is a Savior that died to redeem their mistakes and forgive them. That who they are is bigger and more significant than what the surface might suggest. So here's why having a posture of advocacy is important for us today. Because there are times where, although as Christians we might say, yeah, I, I have good theology, I understand that I'm made in the image of God, etc., etc. And there's times where I can understand that intellectually, but there's times where I may not always feel that way. There's times where I have things going on in my life where I can look good on the surface and I can pretend but there's times where I feel lonely, where I feel discouraged, where I feel ashamed. And what it, the reason this posture of advocacy is important is because although I know this to be true in Scripture, I don't always believe it. Does that make sense? And so what happens sometimes then is we need people who are going to believe it for us and point us towards the truth and say, but you are a child of God. You are not disqualified from grace. We have this posture of advocacy because it points us towards a truth that is beyond what we feel because it's God's word. And so we have this model in Barnabas who, who stepped out of the crowd and became this advocate for Saul who fought on Saul's behalf because the gospel that he believed was too important not to share with people who needed grace like Saul did. Even with a past like Saul did, he said, you know what, he still needs to hear about the truth of Jesus. He still needs to experience it, and I still need to live it out as a follower of his. And it's this model in Barnabas, this unassuming, this normal man who understood the truth of where our value comes from, who understood the value of where, understood the truth of where Saul's value came from. But he was self-aware enough to extend the same grace that he needed in his own life to begin to extend it to others as well. 
And he needed to allow himself to advocate on Saul's behalf so that, he would be able, so that Saul would be able to live in that freedom as well. And it's in this simple moment between, Paul, between Barnabas and Saul that I think changed and accelerated the trajectory of Saul's life. You see, Saul would go on to change his name to Paul. And he would go on to, to, to travel throughout the Mediterranean planting churches leading hundreds of people towards Jesus as he began to take these multiple missionary journeys, eventually meeting with the Caesar of Rome. He would go on to write half, over half the letters of the, of the New Testament. And I kind of wonder, I wonder what the future would have looked like for Saul if Barnabas had not stepped in in that moment. Would he have just continued to be marginalized and alienated by the Christian community? Would he have gone back to Arabia and just lived out his life there, what, what would have happened? And we see this Barnabas who stepped in and said, he needs to experience Jesus. He needs, I, need to show, I need to go beneath the surface with him. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up, and I just want to ask these three questions for us to wrestle with this morning. Here's the first question. How is my theology... How is my theology? Do I really believe that my value and worth comes from God as his creation? Do I understand God's word well enough to know that, that what it says in, this, in God's word reveals something about me? That my value and worth is not based on the externals, the measurables, but instead it's because I'm created in his image. Two, how is my posture of vulnerability? Do I have anyone in my life who genuinely knows me? Someone in my life that I feel genuinely, entirely accepted by? Maybe, maybe you're on the edge of the water of the hot tub and you're thinking, I'm not getting in. It looks way too uncomfortable, way too scary. Could I invite you to just dip your toes in a little bit? Just, just try it out a bit. You might find that it's not as terrifying as you think it is. One of the things that I would encourage you to do, one of the, that, that might be that first step of just tipping your toes in, is joining a small group. When we surround ourselves with community, there's an opportunity for us to be vulnerable. But when we are, are, when we are in isolation, when we are by ourselves, what happens is it, just, it, it actually is a self-protectionistic response to say, I don't want to be vulnerable. I don't, want to be, I don't want people to know me, and I don't want to be known. Maybe because we've been hurt in the past. Maybe because we're afraid. Can I invite you to just, just dip your toes in? Third, Have I, developed a, have, a, have I developed a posture of advocacy? Maybe there's someone in your life right now who you've already disqualified. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's, maybe it's a, a neighbor or a friend or a coworker. You've, you've, but you've given up on them. Like, there's no way that they're ever going to follow Jesus. I know their life I know their life well enough to know that they're, they're going to reject Jesus until they die. Maybe, 
Maybe, maybe you need to be a voice into their life and, and draw out just a little bit of Jesus in them. Show them some grace. As Christine mentioned, we have a prayer service, on prayer event happening on Tuesday. We want to invite you to that. Where maybe, maybe you could just come and you could just pray for that person. We don't need to hear the, the nuts and bolts, the, the story of their life, but we, just, but we also need to know that we have, we have people in our lives who just need Jesus so desperately. Maybe be an advocate for them. Maybe you need to be a part of a, maybe you need to find someone in, within our church to mentor. Like Barnabas, even though Saul was part of the body of Christ, he didn't know it. And Saul went over and Barnabas went over and, and said, let me mentor you. And he became this voice for Saul in his life. Maybe there's someone in the church that maybe you need to consider mentoring. Coming alongside and just being a voice of support. Being a voice of grace. Just being a voice of encouragement the same way that Barnabas was to Saul. But I think that as we do these three things, good biblical theology on humanity, develop a posture of vulnerability, have a posture of advocacy, that I think that what it does is it begins to create this, this environment, this culture, this ethos, that we are, we are not satisfied with, with being on the surface within our relationships. We are not satisfied with being on the surface as a church, that we want to go beneath the surface We want to follow the example that Barnabas set as he pointed Saul towards Jesus. We want to remind ourselves that when when God calls Samuel last week to don't look at the outward appearance, but look at the heart. That as we do that, as we go beneath the surface, that we might be drawing out a work of art in someone as as they embrace who Jesus created them to be. Maybe they've said, you know what, I'm just going to be that hardened marble, I'm going to be the hardened rock. But you get to be that sculptor and say, but hold on, there's something underneath that that I want to I pull out because Jesus is in there. You just don't know it yet. Let's pray. Lord, as we reflect on what is our response this morning, God, we thank you that you have created us in your image. And God, we desire to be people who go beneath the surface. And we pray, Jesus, that you would help us to be able to to be a voice of of encouragement, to be a voice of your truth in the people around us. So God, we pray that this morning, that as we reflect on that, that you would give us the, the courage and the accountability as well, I think, to to be able to take that first step, to be able to turn our eyes towards you and say, okay, God, what is next for me? And then help me to do it.